This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Many of you were inside on Saturday night and you stayed up and you watched the Toronto Maple Leafs advance to the second round of the playoffs for the first time since 2004. And I know there's been more than enough. uh, I can't imagine the consternation and the tension if there was a Leafs Lightning Game 7 tonight. I'll tell you, two years ago, um, the Leafs were up on the Canadians 3-1, and it was weird times back then, right? My recollection is you couldn't do anything outside. The provincial government said no doing things. Schools were out by May when the playoffs started. No tennis, no golf, no basketball, no nothing. We were really, really, to be honest, we were really, really terrible, and we must never let things like that at least happen again. But we were inside watching and thinking, oh, well, the Maple Leafs will make people happy. They're in this weird Canadian North division and they're playing the Canadians and they were up three one in the series and they lost game five in overtime. Eh, yeah, win it in Montreal. That'd be pretty sweet. And the Canadians brought fans back into their building for the first time. And then they lost that game in overtime. And I remember kind of calling around and um, and thinking we we're doing a post game show then on um, 640 Toronto. It was myself and, and Nick Kiprios. And we were doing a post-game show, and we're like, let's, yeah, yeah, let's get people that will be interested in talking about the Leafs. So we were like, let's arrange guests for Game 7 and the post-game analysis because, you know, they're at home and they've already lost two straight. And what could go wrong? It's the first round. And I'm telling you, the messages I got back, I will never betray people's uh, trust but you couldn't get there. We we tried five or six <laughs> pretty famous Maple Leafs. A couple are in the Hall of Fame. They wanted nothing to do with coming on the radio. They wanted nothing to do with the process of committing to be on in an uncertain moment where they weren't sure the Leafs weren't going to, um yes, blow it again. Now, they haven't blown every first-round loss since 2017, and they haven't blown every opportunity to make the second round since 2004. But it t- it told me a lot about how the perception was about the idea of if it's going to go bad, it's going to go bad. And Saturday night, it didn't go bad. And it has an altogether different feeling this morning. I think you'd concur with that. And it was suffering for a long, long time. Now, I see on the headline of the Sunday star curse reversed. And I just, I'd never called it a curse. I'd never called it a curse. I think, you know, the curse might be not getting to the Stanley cup finals since 1967. It might be that because the law of averages, especially if you are a team that spends some of the biggest money and you have a huge front office and you got a lot of infrastructure behind you and a brand and and players should want to play for you. And I think they do again now. For a while, they didn't, and they do again. Steven Stamkos didn't want to come back and play here when he had the opportunity to. Brad Richards, I can give you tons of names of players that are like, no, no, no. I don't want the responsibility of being a big free agent for the Maple Leafs. But then one guy did, and they paid him a lot of money to do it in John Tavares to come home and play for, in essence, his hometown team. And he gets the overtime winner on Saturday night. 19 years of hurt and pain over, and they advanced to the second round. Now, a lot more on it as the show continues. That's for sure. Wendell Clark will be on with us in the 8 o'clock hour. Um, but you you do feel a little bit differently. Maybe you identify a little differently as a Toronto Maple Leafs fan 
this morning. Maybe you saw it as a curse. I'd love to know if you did. I, I just saw it as bad management, <laughs> uh, not getting the right results, not being sure if you had the right mix of players. They had to do a rebuild properly, and they did that uh, going down to 2014 and 2015 to being like bad. And that was kind of the concept. Mike Babcock came here as a head coach. Everybody wanted him to be a coach of their team. Buffalo Sabres sure did. And he said, I want to be in Toronto. Again, people get paid handsomely to say in front of a camera, I want to be in Toronto when, when maybe it's the money talking. But fine, he wanted to be here. And he said, there's going to be pain. But here's the problem. There wasn't pain for that long. They had one really, really bad season, drafted Austin Matthews. They're in the playoffs up 2-1 on the Washington Capitals after three games the very next year. But it took six more years to get to this point. And if you missed it last night, if you're just waking up, there's no Boston Bruins. There's none of that. The Leafs will host the Florida Panthers in game one beginning tomorrow night. Here, we'll give you two versions of this. Here's the TBS overtime winner in the United States of America. Um, the goal score is uh, is identified as John Tavares. Nice and Sergeyev. Now for Tavares behind the net. Gets out in front, turns and shoots and scores! Tavares is the one! This year it is different. For the first time in 19 years, the Maple Leafs are moving on. Yep, he's got all that right. And again, little did they know the Boston Bruins were going to struggle in Game 7 last night. Uh, had a 3-2 lead with a minute left, couldn't hold it. And Florida scored in overtime. Now, I'm going to uh, play you the call of the long-suffering duo that calls the Leafs radio games. For full disclosure, um, I'm, I would say nothing about their character if I'd met them. And didn't really like them. That's sort of what you should do is talk about just their professional work. <laughs> but they're really fun guys. They're fun guys and they're good people. I've met them both and they're wonderful. They have always been wonderful to me. So here's the call of Joe Bone and Jim Ralph. Um, they've waited a long time, a long time. Yes, since before high definition television to make this call. The Leafs have won it. They're going to the second round. Do you believe this? Holy Mackinac! What do we do now? <laughs> I think that was a rhetorical what do we do now, but I don't... It's it's it, it's eminently possible it's not. So, um, yeah, it's, it's changed your I- identity a little bit with how you feel as a Maple Leafs fan. You can tell me your emotions and what your experience was on Saturday night. 416-870-6400 via text. Um, but I'm, I'm getting a sense. I hope the weather's going to be great because I think the streets are going to feel different. Toronto's a different city than it was in 1993 and 1999. And, and even when they were taking sort of one last crack at this, um, heading into what was going to be the lockout, and everybody knew that the league was going to get shut down for a year in 2004. That's the last real opportunity to do these things. And I, I, if you know me, I was covering a lot of uh, Detroit sports and traveling on the road with the Red Wings. I did that for five or six springs in a row where you'd go where they went, Vancouver, St. Louis, Denver, uh, a lot of going back to Denver with that big Wings Avalanche series. And in 2002, I wanted a cup final with Detroit and Toronto very badly. I'd still kind of bristle. I got to go to Raleigh, North Carolina, and that was pretty awesome. But I wanted that Detroit-Toronto cup final. We can't get that. Could we get a Rangers-Toronto conference final in New York? Imagine how many Leaf fans are going to go there. Tickets will be harder to get than they will be down in Sunrise, Florida. That's for sure. Now, 
the streets were packed. There was a little bit of of uh, of mayhem, but for the most part, save one incident that's getting some public attention this morning. Save for one incident, there wasn't a lot of there. Nobody lit a car on fire. Nobody stood on top of a police car. There were people climbing up street lamps. And I'm sure if you were cutting through traffic, it was a lot like it was in in 1993 and 94 when the Leafs would win a playoff series. Good luck driving up and down Yonge Street. Good luck. Well, anyway, uh, good luck driving up and down King Street. And you can't drive down Queen Street until uh, John Tavares is going to be 40 years old. So there was, though, one notable arrest. A fan has been arrested under the, uh, I assume a fan, Um, was arrested under the Liquor License Act for public intoxication. That's from a Toronto police spokesperson. What did he do? Um, He slapped a police horse on its hindquarters. I love horses! I love horses! I love horses! That's that's from the movie Half-Baked, and so he might have been also. Um, The man was released with a ticket, once sober, police said. You could never tell for sure if they're making this up as a warning. Because maybe nine horses got slapped on the butt and they just said, let's just make an example of the one. But um, he may become, yeah, he may become sort of infamous as the horse slapper. He's not, that's not a good gesture. And we don't want to see him as a, as a bearer of good luck or good tidings uh, at any point in time. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We saw this as well over the weekend and, um, Bottom line is, do you remember that there was going to be a big windfall of money from a vacant home tax that Toronto was going to place on owners of vacant homes? And May Warren in the Toronto Star wrote about this yesterday. And this concept of generating a lot of revenue for the city of Toronto because people own homes and don't stay in them um, is a it's a flop. I don't I, there's no other way to describe it. Just twenty one hundred properties were reported empty uh, through the new vacant home ta- homes tax. Now, have they gone into every single one of them? No, but 96% of Toronto's residential property owners submitted declarations to inform the city, basically, is your property occupied or is it not? But the city thought they'd make a lot of money from this. The city looked at what Vancouver did, and Vancouver introduced this five years ago, and uh, it reduced empty properties for one thing, so that's good, but they also were able to convert unoccupied properties to occupied. I think that's good. That that's that's density for lack of a better term. And you could collect taxes on on buildings that end up being vacant. 4 months ago, 4 months ago in January, here's what John Tory, the former mayor of Toronto said about the vacant home tax and what it was going to do for the city. But for the people who choose to keep units empty all the time, we're saying you're making a choice. It is your choice, but there's a cost to that choice because you are denying some person in Toronto who needs a home the opportunity to live in that unit you're choosing to keep empty. And that's pretty accurate. Casey Brendan works for the city of Toronto. He put this number out there. He works in revenue services. He put this number out there. And remember I, what I just said, 2,100 properties, biggest city in Canada, and only 2,100 properties have nobody living in them. Now, I assume also that means like a condominium. That's not just a big house. That's a condominium or an apartment. Um, here's what Casey Brendan expected to get back in terms of properties, and, and he was a little off. That's about 8,000 vacant properties that could be returned to the market for rental or for sale. Uh, yeah, and that's not on Casey Brendan, but the city, um, the city missed by a little bit there. Like, like badly, 
They deemed there to be 820,000 properties in the city, and they figured 1% were vacant. So that's going to end up to be 8,200 properties, give or take some. And they figure, well, we'll get money based on that. They've counted on $66 million had they been right. Amazingly enough, they were wrong by a lot. 2,100 is the number that came in. And 8,600, 8,200 was what what, what they were expecting. Way, 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 way off. So maybe they'll pull in about $15 million of revenue, which for Toronto's debts and problems is a real drop in the bucket. So um, a massive miscalculation by the city on what they'd get. And that's why I deem it uh, a flop. There aren't a lot of vacant units and that's not going to generate revenue for the city of Toronto. There's not many other ways to look and, and they were wildly off in their estimate. And maybe they should take some time, grab a coffee, grab a bagel, figure out why. A little later on in a meeting today, maybe remotely or in person. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I'm driving around listening Saturday morning, and one of my favorite things to do when I hear Toronto this weekend is the segment. This is not a lie. This is not an embellishment. Uh, Devel Morrison does segments with uh, Maggie John, and Devel Morrison joins us right now, a real estate broker from Bosley. Your segments with Maggie are great. I'm always in the car. There, you know, I'll tell you why I was in the car. This I d- didn't plan to be in the car, Devel, but um, there was no coffee in the household Saturday morning. Uh-oh. And I'm going to say I'm responsible more often than not for something that goes wrong in the Brady house. But Mrs. Brady is the, she's the weekend <laughs> coffee manager. I mean, I'm not there five, five, <laughs> like I'm just, you got to tell me. You got, I need alarm bells on Friday and I'll make sure that I can wake up, stay in my pajamas till eight o'clock. But I got to listen to your segment driving to to the grocery store for coffee. And I always enjoy that. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Oh, you guys are really good together. It's, it's, it's great radio. Now I brought this up yesterday to a few people. Um, This uh, vacant homeowners tax um, to me, to me looks like a bit of a, of a flop for the city. They estimated way more homes would be deemed vacant. They said we can bring in $66 million was the number in a clip I found back in January. Um, is someone not telling the truth? Have they, why would they they overestimate so many more homes would be vacant? It looks like only 2,100 homes based on their research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think they were wrong. I don't know where they're, what their staff reports were based on, but they were clearly wrong. And, you know, the vacant homes are not as much of a problem as they seem to think it is. I mean, to me, what's upsetting is that they spent $11 million. They were, their plans are spending $11 million over two years to administer this program. And I believe it costs about $3 million a year to administer this program. And so I'm thinking, you know what? Why don't you guys go build some affordable housing with that money? Stop it. Thank you. Mayor Devell. you got time. you got 12 days. Let's get these papers in. I'd vote for you. But because I, I wonder, Devell, did they look at Vancouver and think, they have found a solution there, but but not all cities are created equally. And with foreign ownership in Vancouver, clearly that that's been an issue for probably you know a decade and a half, maybe longer in mm-hmm. in Vancouver and in in British Columbia with foreign interests. We just don't seem to have. I think people that get places in Toronto realize how expensive they are, and, and they rent them out. They want nobody wants a vacant property that doesn't serve anybody's interest. Absolutely. But I, 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 you know, to your point, you're right. They looked at Vancouver and figured, oh, we must be similar. 
when we're not. Now, it's not that there aren't vacant homes here. Of course they are. And, you know, over the years as realtors, I've certainly heard of, you know, a few vacant homes here and there, but they're usually not the kind of condos that people are going to rent out. The vacant homes that I've heard of usually are two and three and four million dollar houses. And that's just somebody parking money. They're actually those kinds of people that are just going to accept the fine and move on. They're not all of a sudden going to flood the market with their $3 million houses and, and, you know, cause everybody to have, oh, great, here's a great place to live. I mean, I think their hope was that people would flood the market with their condos so Mm. that people could start renting them or buying them. But that's really not what's happened. And I think it really goes to show you how little research and how little knowledge we actually know about what's happening in our real estate market. That's what it clarifies for me. You make such a great point about um, about getting down to the to the real numbers. Could this at all be a case of people not self-reporting? There's a reliance from the city for people on like we how we do our taxes or how we do other other things that we're supposed to do. There there is a reliance on transparency and honesty, but there just can't be that many people being dishonest and not transparent. We we they missed on the number, like you said. Absolutely. But I mean, you know, as much as what they did was silly, the one thing that they did do, which was very good, was they actually mailed out notification to everybody. So everybody actually received this and everybody knew about it. Not, of course, there were people who were out of the country who didn't know about it, but 96% of the people actually filled out and submitted the declaration. So that's pretty good. If you compare this to the federal underused housing tax, that was something that people were like, who knows about this? Why are we not talking about this? Because there wasn't any kind of notification in the mail. So I would say that the city of Toronto actually did a good job of notifying everybody. Yeah. So that's why I feel like, no, they actually, I mean, with 96% of the people submitting a declaration, they clearly got a very true representation of which homes were actually vacant. And it turned out it's not as many as they thought. And, you know, maybe they should be putting this energy around building some more affordable housing with the money they just wasted enacting this vacant home tax. Yeah, I'm sure you're watching the candidates and, and their housing platforms and, and everything's related, right? Housing's related to where transit is, transit's related to where your job is, homelessness certainly factors into all this as well. Um, and I'm just, I, it makes me really frustrated that None of these issues came to the forefront in the fall. We had a mayor. We knew he'd be reelected. So many of these sort of more A and B list candidates decided, I don't want to run against John Tory. I'm not going to win. But they're yeah. all out there now when we really could have. I, I give Chloe Brown so much credit uh, for, yeah. for doing this again. And she did it in the fall. And I she was in visiting with us. And I'm like. 30 years old. I told her, I think, I think you're going to be mayor someday. I don't know if it'll be like in, in a month, but I she's, she's, she's got really- all the things for it. She is. You know what? She's a really good candidate. I'm so happy to hear that you brought her name up because, you know, I looked at her uh, her performance uh, in the last election in terms of the debate. And really, for me, she was the outstanding person. And, you know, unfortunately, she doesn't have the name recognition of all of the other candidates. So people don't talk enough about her. You know, she doesn't have, you know, the big people putting their Mm -hmm. campaign behind her. But honestly, I think she's such a good candidate for mayor. Absolutely. So are you getting enough? If, if you were to sum up what you've heard from candidates so far, are, are you we're still early and, and there's still, you know, a whole month and another 26 days before people vote. But outside, you know, I'll name them. I, I think Josh Matlow's put some substance into this. I think Mitzi Hunter has as well. But there's a lot of candidates not giving us a lot of details saying they'll build affordable housing, but not telling anybody where and, and how they'll pay for it. 
Yeah, but see, what concerns me, so I live in the riding where Josh Matlow um, is the counselor. Mm -hmm. And if Josh Matlow gets elected, we're not getting a lot of housing. I got to tell you, he is the enemy of all the developers in my neighborhood because he is the head nimbier in my neighborhood. And so, you know, with this election, he's talking a good game. And lots of people who don't live in his riding are like, oh, he seems like a great guy. And those of us who live in the riding are like, no, please, our city is screwed if he becomes mayor. I really hope that people do a little bit more research and find out that he's just not the guy. I do think we have to be really careful because housing is really, really, really important. And we really need someone who's going to make sure that housing gets built in this city. So I wonder if that's easier with taking all that you said in, in context. I wonder if that's easier when you're the mayor of a bigger city. You know, and I know if you were if you were an elected representative, well, that person that lives three houses down from you is going to be kind of like, hey, you know, how about doing me a little solid here more so than somebody on the other side of town? I, I, you know, John Tory was probably <laughs> more uh, conciliatory towards his street neighbors needs than he was for people who lived 20 kilometers away like i think it's easier to do the bigger job in that context but i your points your point is taken yeah no absolutely i mean yeah like i said housing is such a huge we're at a crisis point and i also think that we need to combine housing with social work with mental health mm-hmm. and until we realize that there's a correlation between all those three things i feel like we're not going to get out from under because the housing crisis is affecting so many other aspects of all of our lives mm. that we really need to get it together. Hey, you have a big fan listening that just texted in named Chris um, uh, with a K. And she writes, ask Devel, what about the snowbirds that live down south for many months? If they're down for six months, could a neighbor claim that property is empty when it's actually not? It's a great question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where, I mean, those are some of the flaws with that vacant home tax, right? That you do have some of these people that they are snowbirds. They're not vacant. They just, they obviously they're retired and they want to live in a warmer place in the winter. (laughs) I can't fault them for that, you know? And so, you know, they shouldn't be getting fined. And that is exactly what's happening with some of those people. They were away when the notification came out and now they're coming back and they're seeing that they're getting fines. And, and that's, you know, that's yeah. not OK. They're allowed to go on their you know retirement thing down south. somewhere. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I sent two texts yesterday to somebody when it's raining sideways late in the morning yesterday. And it's the last day in April. And I'm like, why do we live here? There's got to be a good reason. <laughs> there has to be a reason why our spring is, is like this. I can't thank you enough for coming on. Um, and I really appreciate you doing so. Thanks again. We'll talk really soon. Thanks for having me. Devel Morrison's a real estate broker with Bosley. Some really interesting stuff there. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. What about the economic impact and just the vibe that we're going to have here in the city and for a lot of a lot of brands that have stuck with the Leafs because they're, they're a pretty proven commodity in the economic, uh, in the sports business world. Adam Seaborn's head of partnerships at Playmaker Capital, and I love reading his uh, opinion and insight on this stuff. Adam, I, though, again, I didn't think we'd be talking about a round two Leafs advancement a few weeks ago, but here we are. I didn't think so either, Greg. Good to see you. <laughs> it's one of those things as well where I, I wonder if um, for brands, for the expectation of, of not just the games on TV, but local businesses, all these companies that have invested so deeply in hockey or in the Maple Leafs themselves, they love seeing the Boston Bruins get eliminated. The potential for an extra home game this round and maybe an easier path to the semifinals. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, this is sports, as you mentioned, Toronto Maple Leafs are the most known commodity kind of in entertainment and sports in Toronto and probably in Canada, maybe outside the Habs. Um, so if you're a brand and you sign up to be an arena sponsor, to have your name on the boards, to be kind of the presenting sponsor of certain segments, to have the association with the team, you know, Scotiabank, Tim Hortons, think of these big companies, they've been doing it for a long time because it's it's a good bet, right? It's a good way to get that activation in front of young sports fans to really like tap into this kind of zeitgeist of the city, which is hard to do with just about anything else with music or film or, or culture. So sports are always a good bet, but they are a bet because for the last 19 years, the Leafs have been bumped out of the first round and rarely made the playoffs. In which case you've paid, you know, a lot of money for a package that always includes these escalators for when the Leafs make the Stanley cup final uh, that have you know never really tapped in. And you've kind of always been tied to moments of disappointment. So Absolutely. I think there's a lot of brands that were uh, were quite happy to see them advance, and and I'm sure the team is too. There's things in the media business, and, and sure, in marketing and in sports called make goods, and uh, <laughs> people don't like to hear the sound of make goods when they're in the sales game or when they're in, in the position I'm in. Nobody loves the idea, well, you got to make good on this, but but that's been happening a lot, not just on the television or radio side, but as you point out, like like just the corporate side and, and the in-arena stuff. Yeah, so to give people a little bit of like pull behind the curtain here, very rarely are sponsorship deals like this struck in the 11th hour or struck, you know, a week before or a month before. These are typically 12 month or, you know, two year, three year, five year arrangements that have these built in clauses for execution performance. So on TV, for example, that first round of the playoffs, you know, Hockey Night in Canada, Rogers Sports, they're expecting a certain audience for the games, kind of around 3 million people for the Leaf games. They're selling against that audience at a certain price point. Um, and if the Leafs don't hit that number, those advertisers are going to come crawling back for their audience, right? They're going to say, okay, you promised me 3 million viewers for the game. Uh, and you promised me this many games. We only deliver this many games. So where are my viewers? You're going to have to go make them good. And typically, they make them good at other programs. It's less inventory that they have to sell. So every mm -hmm. time that you actually advance in the next round, it's another pool and batch of inventory that, for the most part, is already sold. So, you know, before the Leafs advanced to the second round, advertisers had already cut checks to Rogers for second round playoff airtime in the games and third round and Stanley Cup final games. The same way that as a season ticket holder with the Leafs, anyone who's, who's you know, had the, had the privilege of doing that will know that they, Maple Leafs charged your credit card first thing this morning for the second round tickets. And they're going to charge you first thing as soon as they win the second round for the third round. And the prices go up not by you know a couple percent. They go up quite substantially as we get through each round. So same is true with the TV ratings. Same is true with the in-arena activation. As every round goes on, the hype and excitement and people's, you know, I'd say tied to the actual value of the sponsorship kind of throws out the window. You get excited and the payments go up big time. Adam Seaborn's our guest, head of partnerships uh, in North America at Playmaker Capital. I, I, I think, you know, I, I think you might have something wrong. I, I think some people lost money out of their accounts around 10 o'clock on Saturday night. I think there were some uh, withdrawals. <laughs> Right. They, they, it's MLSE. They, they don't hesitate. Yeah. Listen, they, it's a professional organization. Yeah, they know how to, how to how to extract money from their fan yeah. base. Kyle, Kyle Dubas has that Tim Hortons cup in front of him in the general manager's box in Tampa. Now, I know there's a Tim Hortons in that arena specifically. It's going to be fascinating to see if he takes the cup with him on the road uh, just just for that product placement <laughs> at uh, game three and four in uh in florida i'd ask this as well like it's really tough to get a bottom line on what each game means for mlsc but even if we were to spitball and say there's twenty thousand seats at 200 a seat well right away that's four million on the gate but you'd tell me it's much much more than that and we should point out for our casual listeners they stop paying the players like the players stop making their salaries in the regular season the nhl gives them a playoff bonus for a round but this is just this is just printing money when you get to playoff hockey 
Yeah. So, I mean, listen, if you're in the sports business, you have this fixed cost, which is this huge arena, which costs a lot of money to operate. But beyond that, once you get into this postseason time of uh, year, you have a lot of, you know, either variable or non-existent costs. So if they don't play any more games, you don't play any of the concession staff in there, right? So there's really no risk there. You're not locked into some contract with the concession staff. If the playoffs end, they don't get paid anymore. That's the end of their contract for the year. So they come in, you're paying the same concession wage that you would have paid during the regular season. As you mentioned, ticket prices go up. Yeah, for the Leafs, the estimate is probably between four and five million in gate revenue just off the hop, which mm-hmm. is pretty incredible. Just for the gate, that's before you buy a single twenty dollar beer, or buy a jersey or a hat. Um, so there's that element to it. You're right; you, they do not pay the players. But also, you know, if you're in the arena business, you're in the sports business. The whole name of the game is how can I fill my building 365 days of the year? Keith Pelly has talked about this in the past. So has uh, you know Larry Tannenbaum's coming and talking about this. That's really the whole entire business in those in those arenas. And you can't schedule very many events for the time when your team might be making a playoff run. Otherwise, you're going to a have to cancel those events or you're going to really piss off with whatever musical act is in there. So mm-hmm. generally, right now, if the Leafs had lost, right, if the Leafs had lost in game six and we're playing game seven tonight and they were to lose tonight, the next two weeks, that arena was probably going to be empty. So you're going to generate zero revenue. So now you're filling in those nights that you'd already penciled in. Um, I think four to five million in gate is very reasonable estimate. I think another few million in sponsorship and concession is very reasonable. So as every game goes on, uh, I mean, I think one NHL owner who I can't remember now came out a few years ago and he said, every game is incrementally worth so much. The best case scenario for us is to go to game seven of the cup final and lose. So we don't need to pay for a parade. Yeah, it feels that way. I mean, you think their run in 93 was a seven-game series, a seven-game series, and a seven-game series, and two of those game sevens are at home. So you get 11 home games over the span of, and that's Maple Leaf Gardens. That's before suites. That's before, you know, rink board ads and and the like. I got about a minute and a half here, but do you think, how would you guess that price points for these games are set? Every team can do it differently. The Panthers' price is going to be cheaper than the Leafs' price when they go on sale later today, but we don't have a look at them yet. I mean, is there any price that 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 goes too high for the Maple Leafs the further they go now, given we just we're in such a different world than 19 years ago? Or do they sit around a boardroom and go, we know what we're doing. We know how to set it. So it's so high we maximize profit, but nobody's going to hesitate at buying them. I, listen, they're great at this. I'll just give you like the listeners a bit of a price point here. If you're sitting in the lower bowl, if you were in about row between 10 and, and 12, you know, good seats, you know, center ice or, or near there, near the blue lines. First round, you were probably paying about $600 to $700 per ticket. That's face value. That's what you're paying MLSE. Second round now, you're looking at between $700 and $800. If you get all the way to the cup final, it gets up to $1,700 to $2,000 face value per ticket. That's what they're extracting from season ticket holders. So they are pricing out, I think, a lot of the aftermarket. I think when people see the StubHub prices or on Ticketmaster or uh, secondary market or anything, they say, wow, these prices are huge. People must be making a big margin. They're not. The team is priced in these numbers, and they are expecting mm-hmm. a lot from their fans if it goes to a cup final. Just incredible. Well, let's stay in touch on this front. Adam, those hot dogs aren't free. you got to get them from Galen Weston, <laughs> and he's charging a lot of money for those for those hot dogs. At a Unless you're time. at the Jays game on a Tuesday, then they're a pretty good deal. <laughs> Someone might want to buy them in bulk and cart them over in an Uber uh, to Scotiabank Arena. See if people notice the difference. Put a little mustard on. You won't even notice. Uh, Adam, love our chats. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Greg. Take care. Adam Seaborn joining us from Playmaker Capital. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. For all the sort of chaos disorder that's in the city of Toronto, driving transit the like, um, 
I'm telling you, the Maple Leafs seem, seem to unite us. They really do. We've all lived that existence. I mentioned walking with my dad to that game one against Leafs-Kings in 1993. is the only game I went to that spring, and it's chills. I've gotten to do some cool stuff, but you, you, you always remember moments like that. A catalyst on that team, as well as a Maple Leaf from the time he was drafted first overall in 1985, and he's got to be pretty excited by uh, the city feeling this moment again. He is Leaf legend Wendell Clark. Wendell, it's great to have you on Toronto today. Thanks very much for making the time. All good. Good to be here. Yeah, so many times probably people, you know, yubs like me have put you on the radio and said, Wendell, why didn't they get it done? Why are they so bad? Why'd they lose that series? And now we don't have to ask you that. You Three overtime wins on the road as well. That had never happened before in a playoff series. No, it's uh, it's great. They were uh, able to weather the storm in all the games, uh, which is something we haven't done in the past. And the big thing is uh, game seven where we could win the low-scoring two-to-one type game. So that's uh, that's huge. You know the importance of a good goalie on your team, too. Um, and, and Felix, Felix Potfan certainly was that for those two playoff runs where you'd look back behind you, you had the ultimate confidence. I saw that a little bit with Ilya Samsonov. It's no knock on any of the other guys, but I think for a lot of people, they could start to visualize once he got into this series and got on a roll, he, he wasn't going to give up the bad goal at the bad time. What was your thought on that? No, no, he played really well. And it's not, it's about, uh, I think Grant Fear is probably the best ever at it. He, you'd play Grant Fear and you give up a couple goals and then come third period, you say, okay, nobody else scores. And and that's what mm-hmm. Samsonov was doing. He, in crucial times, he kept us in the game when the team may falter a bit. He makes a couple saves and, you know, we're still there. So that's, uh, that's huge on his part. Uh, big saves, big time. I mentioned getting to the second round and it's been 19 years, but that third round's really something. And I mentioned walking with my dad to that first game in, in 93, a memorable one for you for sure, and a memorable run. Can you just describe how the city sort of transformed and changed? There'd been a few years, uh, lean years before that. You beat the Red Wings, you beat the Blues, you're rolling into the third round. Like, it was all anybody could think about and talk about on the streets in Toronto back then. Well, it's great, and it's great for the city. The Jays were doing their thing, went in, and, but it's it's the great thing about hockey is you keep going uh, – it goes from the teams are all cut in half uh, starting tomorrow, and then all of a sudden you go to another round, it's cut in half again. So you realize you're the only ones playing, and that's that's a lot of fun, and it's your city, and the people in the city realize you're the only city that's one of the few cities that's still playing. So it's a real fun time, and in Canada, it's a great feeling because that's spring. The weather is good. <laughs> Yeah, all all of that. Was it was it even even 93 and 94 in the spring Wendell? Was it different just walking around to get your groceries to to go from point A to B just to just to make it to the rink? It it had to feel a little bit. You know what it's like you you, you know, every athlete's going to live their life when they're on a losing streak or the team's not doing great. It's a lot more fun to walk around with your chest puffed out when when everybody's wishing you well. Well, no, it's it's fun. It's uh, they it's uh, in sports. It's one of the few jobs that you live and die, and every you have a bad day at work, everybody <laughs> knows about it. Everybody's writing about it, whether it's the radio, the TV. You sit down for breakfast or lunch. The other tables are staring at you when you got nothing going on. So, it's uh, it's good uh, when they can get on a roll and feel good about what they do. So you've you've also seen how Leafs fans travel, um, and you saw it when you were playing in Detroit uh, as well, like. Um, they're going to be in Florida in big numbers. Is there any way to sort of estimate how much Leaf fans are, how many Leaf fans are going to be? That's going to sound like a home game. It did in Tampa in the first round. 
Well, no, it's going to be awesome. It's, and it's one of the places that you're going to be able to get tickets. So it's going to be great for the Leaf fan. They can go back and forth every couple of days. Lots of good stuff to do, downtime for the fans. So hopefully they have fun going uh, home and road. Yeah, Wendell Clark's our guest. Of course, Maple Leafs legend, 793 NHL games. And I'll say there has to be something you feel for the Tavares's, the Matthews, the Rileys. They've been they've been plugging away at this. It's been game seven exit after game seven exit. You you came in as a rookie, and though not a good regular season, you want to round as a rookie. You want to round the very next year as well. Like it, you know, it, there is an element where you sort of you never take it for granted. But these guys have been knocking at the door for so many years. I don't blame them for thinking we're never going to make it. No, it's I feel great for those guys, the the core guys that have been here for the the long haul. They've uh, they've been right there. They've been making the playoffs and losing out in game six or seven. It's and and so for them to get through, so happy for them to feel it. And and maybe it's something that it's uh, it's something that's learned or clicked. You can't you can talk about what you have to do, but until you actually do it, uh, you've got through another learning curve. And these guys just got through another learning curve on what it takes to get to the next round. So. Hopefully they can just take that and and keep going with it. Hopefully so. Hey, Wendell, thanks so much for your time this morning. I know uh, your phone's probably been buzzing and popping since uh, since Saturday night, and we don't have the dreaded Game 7 tonight at home. It's a relief. We'll be watching tomorrow night along with you. Thanks so much for the time today. Awesome. Great. Thanks, guys. Uh, Wendell Clark joining us on Toronto Today. He's right about that. He's right about the sort of, you know, you go in in, in terms of being out in the public and you think, that walk to the rink, so many players would walk to Carlton Street, would walk to Maple Leaf Gardens um, from where they lived at the time. They were really close. I, I always remember seeing somebody walk to a game. If you were anywhere around four or five o'clock, you could be in one of those places. And, oh, there's Todd Gill that walked by. I remember watching, here's a random name, Warren Reichel walking by to a game in like 97, 98. Um, and there was nothing like it in 93. He's right about the Jays, too. The Jays were defending World Series champs. They started really well in 93. You knew they were good again, but by the time the Leafs had gotten to that series against the Kings, I, I guess Skydome and, and the Blue Jays were still drawing big amounts of fans, but we're talking like like utter devotion, an utter obsession at that time in 1993 watching those games with the university roommates like those are the things i'm so happy for people who are in their 20s and early 30s because they get to sort of live like we did who uh we were going to school in in our 20s and 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 whatnot and and being university students or high school students it's unbelievable now again i'm talking like they're in the third round already and they got a florida panthers team to beat but it all starts tomorrow night game one and tickets go on sale like we said nine o'clock this morning so 20 minutes from now you want to take a shot at it i thought adam seaborn encapsulated it perfectly with us uh talking about pricing and whatnot Twenty thousand seats at 200 bucks and that's a really that's conservative for what the average ticket price is when you consider the golds and the platinums it's four million dollars it's a four million dollar you know installation and we're not even talking about concessions and new merch and new playoff gear and all that stuff.